0: When you look at things differently, you'll see opportunities all around. That's why Capella University looks at education differently. Their game-changing flex-path format helps you control the pace and cost of your degree. Visit capella.edu to learn more. That's C-A-P-E-L-L-A.edu. When it comes to finding an unforgettable Mother's Day gift, Movement makes stylish watches and inspired jewelry as unique as she is. Movement's small team of dreamers in Venice Beach, California have perfected sleek, original, ultra-clean watch design and stunning, minimalist jewelry. And for Mother's Day, they're having a huge site-wide sell, so you can get a tried-and-true gift that won't break the bank. Movement offers fresh, modern designs to go from 9-5 to workdays to 5-9 to good times and every adventure in between. They use elegant, precise Japanese watch movements and industry-leading materials from complex ceramics, solar-powered dials, to upcycled ocean plastic cases. So I've got a Movement watch. I got their field watch. What I like about the Movement field watch, it has that classic military uh, look of a field watch, but it made it really sleek. I really like that. Uh, So it's that combination of rugged and refined that I like. So if you're looking for a Mother's Day gift, watch, jewelry, sunglasses. You can get it at Movement Watches. Save big on your best Mother's Day gift ever for movement. Get up to 40% off at MVMT.com and use code MANLINESS. Exclusions may apply. That's MVMT.com. Code MANLINESS for up to 40% off. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Charisma can make everything smoother, easier, and more exciting in life. It's a quality that makes people want to listen to you, to adopt your ideas, to be with you. While what creates charisma can seem like a mystery, my guest today, communications expert Vanessa Van Edwards, says it comes down to possessing an optimal balance of two qualities, warmth and competence. The problem is, even if you have warmth and competence, you may not be good at signaling these qualities to others. In Vanessa's work, she's created a research-backed encyclopedia of these influential signals, and she shares how to offer them in her book, Cues, Master the Secret Language of Charismatic Communication. Today on the show, Vanessa and I discuss some of these verbal and nonverbal social cues that make you attractive to others and keep you out of what she calls the danger zone. She explains what the distance between your earlobes and shoulders has to do with looking competent, how using uptalk and vocal fry sabotages your ability to convey power, how to put more warmth in your voice, how to trigger the right response with a dating profile picture, and more. After the show's over, check out our show notes at slash charismacues. Vanessa Van Edwards, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
0: So you have made a career researching, writing about, teaching how to be effective communicators, how to be more charismatic. And a book I just recently read, I really enjoyed. It's called Cues, Master the Secret Language of Charismatic Communication. So let's start off with definitions. How do you, as a researcher, how do you define charisma? So
1: the good news is, is that charisma can be learned. So we can define it and we can learn it. So that's that's the good thing. And I always was perplexed by charisma because one thing we found in our lab many, many years ago, we were doing a little experiment and we were surprised because we asked two questions in our experiment. The first one was, who is the most charismatic person you know? If you're listening to this. Just think about that person for a second. We timed people on their answers. People could immediately tell us the most charismatic person they knew. It took about three seconds. The next question we asked was, what is charisma? Trying to get them to define it. It was so interesting. had just had them define or think about their most charismatic person. This question completely stumped people. It took an average of about 15 seconds for people to answer. And typically they could not come up with a a good answer. And we realized charisma is one of these few traits that we know the moment we see it. We know when we see someone walk into a room who has high charisma or a pop on video, we're drawn to them, yet we have a very hard time defining it. So when we go to the research, we find that very highly charismatic people, the reason that they are so magnetic and so unique is they have a perfect blend of two specific traits. And the key here is they have to have an, these traits in equal measure. They are warmth and competence. So highly charismatic people, what they do is they're signaling warmth, trust, likability, collaboration, but at the very same time, they're signaling competence, capability, power, efficiency. And so we love charisma, charismatic people because they're both likable and respectable, You know, warm and credible. So that's the actual definition is warmth plus competence.
0: Okay, so you can be exceedingly warm and not be charismatic, correct?
1: Yes, so that's the key is what most people have, and this this research comes from Dr. Susan Fisk, is most of us have an imbalance. Most of us have a little bit too high of warmth or a little bit too high of competence, or we're signaling too high warmth or we're signaling too high competence. And what happens with this is you can be very likable, friendly, collaborative, but if you have too much warmth, people don't respect you. People don't take you seriously. People interrupt you. If you have too high competence without enough warmth, people see you as very credible, very powerful. But without the warmth, they see you as intimidating or hard to talk to, or the one that we hear a lot is cold or stoic. And so the key is why that, that blend is so important is you have to have them in balance that I'm approachable, but I'm also credible.
0: And are there people who have neither warmth nor competence?
1: Oh, yes, that's... That I call the danger zone. And by the way, this is where I was in purgatory for many, many, many years. So I'm a recovering awkward person. The reason that I'm obsessed with charisma is I don't have it naturally. I was that kid in school who sat in the corner of the cafeteria and looked and watched all the cool kids with their amazing charisma. And I was always amazed by how they were able to bottle it. And so the danger zone is when you're not signaling enough warmth nor competence. And what research has found is folks who are overly stoic, and by the way, this doesn't mean you don't have warmth and competence. It means you're not signaling warmth and competence. And this is, I think the mistake that most of us face is the reason I wasn't signaling anything is because I was afraid. I was terrified of being rejected or disliked. So what did I do? I shut down. I shut down all my cues. I tried to be invisible. And so what research finds is if we don't signal enough, humans don't know what to do with us. Our cues tell others how to treat us. And so people who don't have enough of either signal, they're pitied, they're dismissed, they're ignored, and mostly they're underestimated. And this is, I think, a big problem for very smart people is very smart people, they rely so much on their technical skills, their book smarts. They think, I'm prepared, I have knowledge, I have expertise, I don't need to worry about these cues or signals. I don't have to worry about warmth or competence. My knowledge will speak for itself. And so what happens is they show up with all those technical skills in their head, but what the research found very clearly is if you don't have enough cues, specifically if you don't have enough warmth cues, people do not believe your competence. Competence without warmth leaves people feeling suspicious. And that's why you have such smart people. Most of our students are high achieving professionals and they cannot get enough credibility. They cannot get people to believe their competence.
0: So another way I've heard this idea of the danger zone described is as a way to describe somebody who's contemptible, right? I think all of us have someone in our life where we think about it and we think, oh my gosh, that guy, he's just hes just really contemptible. Um, and if you ever wonder why that is, it's because... Uh, They lack warmth and they lack, uh, they're not competent. So, you know, you don't enjoy being around them. They're just not likable. But then also they can't do anything really well. They don't, they're not competent, right? They're not good at anything. And that's why we find them contentable. Like we just, we find them really annoying and, and that's the danger zone.
1: So annoying is a good one. I, so also people don't want to catch it, Right we're very, very contagious, emotionally contagious as humans. So if you have someone who is not signaling enough, if that contemptuous person, we don't want to catch that kind of anxiety, that kind of lack of warmth or competence. And so the reason we're drawn to charismatic people, but not drawn to danger zone folks is because we want to be around people who are positively contagious. We want to catch what they have.
0: Okay, so you, you, this is important stuff. Like, learn thinking about being charismatic. A lot of people think, "Well, this is just superficial. That that's what shallow people do." But you're making the case that this can help you get ahead in your career and in your personal life as well.
1: And luckily, the I was shocked by this research. So I was in that first category where I doubled down on my test scores and my GPA and my resume. You know, I, that, I was that was what I thought was really important, and I was failing at life. I could not communicate well with people. I was forgotten. I was dismissed. And the research actually has found very, very clearly that when we are more charismatic, people are more likely to take us seriously. We like to listen to ideas from very charismatic people. So the way that I think about this is you've spent a lot of years, likely people who are listening, investing in your expertise, whatever that is, whether you're a creative or you're a technical person, you have developed this skill set Charisma is like the social lubricant that you need for people to adopt it. It makes everything smoother.
0: So the book's called Cues. And the idea is that there are these social cues that we give off. And usually we do this unconsciously. Like we don't even think about it. But in the book, you're making the case that we can be more intentional and thoughtful about these social cues that we display so that we can influence how people think about us in a more positive way. So what are social cues and how much they influence how people see us?
1: Yes. So cues are the social signals that we send to each other. And what most people don't realize is actually there's two sides of cues. There's decoding. This is the thing that most people think of. So you spot a cue on someone else, maybe an eye roll or a smile. Those are all different cues. They tell us what the other person thinks. They tell us how they want to be treated. But there's also encoding. Those are the social signals we send to others So a lot of the times we only focus on one aspect. We think about decoding cues are being sent, but actually there's a loop happening. Not only are our emotions contagious, our cues are contagious. So research on this is so interesting. It finds that we tend to subconsciously mirror the people we're with. Another reason why we want to be around people with great cues is because we catch them. Confident people make us look more confident because we tend to copy things. What I really was fascinated by is there. we're sending hundreds of cues to each other every day. We do it on video. We do it on the phone. We do it in our emails. There are actually four different categories of cues. It's not just our body language. There's our nonverbal, so our body language, our facial expressions, our gestures, our posture. That's one big bucket. Research finds that's at a minimum about 60% of how we communicate our message, which is a massive amount of Of affects us in a massive way. The second one is our verbal. So the words we use, right? Even the cues that we send in our emails and our texts and our profiles tell people how to treat us. We can talk about um, how that works specifically if you want. I find that research fascinating. The third one is voice tone. So our volume, our pace, our cadence. And the last one is ornaments the colors we wear, the jewelry we wear, the car we drive. So on in this medium, the only cue channels I have are verbal and vocal, but that means I have to work really hard on making sure that I'm as contagious as I can through my verbal and my vocal cues because they're affecting not only how you think of me, that's actually less important, more how you feel about yourself and how you take this advice.
0: So let's talk about some of these cues that this encyclopedia of cues that you developed with your team. Let's talk about some nonverbal stuff first. What are some powerful charisma cues that cause people to pay attention to us when we're when we're talking?
1: All right. So I'm going to start with the ones that I think are the quickest. And um, the reason for this is because I like to start off with the beginner stuff and then move to more advanced. My favorite charisma cue is actually the lean. And this is a really, really simple one. And the reason for this is because it actually creates a very interesting brain activation. So research found that when participants in their lab leaned forward slightly, so I'm going to lean forward right now. If you're listening to this, I'd love if you just lean forward for me like an inch or two, whether you're seated or standing or running. When you lean forward, they found that it activates a very specific part of your brain that is pre-action. The reason for this is because when we're about to activate one of our five senses, We lean in. We want to see something better. We lean in. We want to smell something. We lean in. We want to touch something. We lean in. And so interestingly, this is also a nonverbal cue of activation. So when someone is really into something, they'll lean into it. When someone really agrees with you, they'll lean into it. Very highly charismatic people cue you to lean into their very most important points or um, a deep thought by leaning in themselves. And so if you watch TED speakers, you'll notice that when they're at the most important point, They give a little lean and it actually makes you want to lean in too. So leaning is a really easy one. You can do it on video. You can do it in person. You can even do it, I think, over audio to like give that we're inside something. We're talking about something really good. It's a really simple one, but it's so effective.
0: Another one you talked about that I thought was interesting is fronting. What is fronting? Fronting.
1: Yes. Okay. So when we think about space, so with nonverbal, we're constantly trying to interact with other humans in space. And so fronting is when we angle our body, our entire body, toes, torso, and head towards the person we're speaking with. Ideally, and this is an interesting one, when we are on parallel lines with someone else, so if you imagine like a railroad tracks, we like in the perfect scenario to be on the same track as someone else. Our feet are aligned, our hips are aligned, our head is aligned. And when we do this, our body and our brain think, ah, we're aligned. There's nothing in between us. I'm going to speak more. I'm going to speak in longer sentences. We're more likely to say yes if we're fronting with someone. The reason why this is important is because I notice we accidentally don't front when we are on our computer. We're taking notes. We kind of call over our shoulder. I've even noticed a couple people with their Zoom setups will have their camera off to the side or over one shoulder while they're typing on their computer. It is physically hard for someone to open up, collaborate, or connect when you are not being fronted with. And so one of the doctors we interviewed for the book, he found that when he angles, his, he swivels his entire stool towards someone, he can actually get the patient to talk more, open up more. So this is a very simple one that always try to make a point of angling your entire body towards someone.
0: Well, I think we intuitively know this, right? If you don't want to talk to somebody, like you're on like the subway or a bus, you're sitting next to somebody you want to show, I don't want to talk to you, kind of shift the other way. Uh, from the, away from the person.
1: Yeah. And decoding is a great point here is all of these cues have both encoding and decoding. We can send the signal. We can also decode the signal. If you're looking for who should I approach in a bar, who Mm. should I go up to at this networking event? You want to look for people who are more open to fronting. I jokingly call it croissant (laughs) feet. Any reference to a croissant is a good reference for me. So what I mean by this is if someone doesn't want you to interrupt their their group, like you're in a networking event or you're at a bar, they will be fully fronting with the person they're talking with. They have no opening. If someone is in croissant feet, in other words, their foot is angled out, their, their torso is angled out, they are literally saying, I am physically open to being approached. And so you can also decode who wants to talk to me and who doesn't want to talk to me based on fronting.
0: Okay. So two things there. If you want to seem more charismatic, signal that you're charismatic Lean in, and you can do that via audio as well. And then the fronting, just turn towards people. And that will, people. I think one of the things I've heard about charisma is that charisma is making someone feel like they're the most important person in the room. And fronting does that.
1: Yes, exactly. Because you're literally saying, I respect you so much. I'm going to give you my full nonverbal attention. Very weird thing to think about. That's how we think about it as humans.
0: Well, a point you make, I think we we should talk about this. This warmth competence dichotomy, you point out that if you want to be charismatic, you have to understand that some situations might require more warmth and some situations might require more competence signals. It's not like in every situation you want to be perfectly aligned with warmth and balance. In order to get that balance, it's going to depend on the situation, correct?
1: Yeah. The metaphor I like to think of is like a thermostat, right? So if you think about the thermostat in your home, you probably have an ideal range that you like, you know, let's say between 68 and 72. So 68 might be a little on the cooler side. It's a hot summer day. 72 might be on the winter. Above 72, you're hot. That's too warm. Below 68, you're cold. That's competent. Too competent. Um, in the forties, it's a danger zone. So this range, you actually have a quite a bit of flexibility, very highly charismatic people. You leverage this range. So if they're going into a meeting where they're negotiating, they need to be taken seriously. They're selling. They don't want any pushback. They will dial up their competence cues. They'll use more power gazing. They'll use more purposeful hand gestures. They'll be more still in their uh, body posture. Those are all competence cues. On the other hand, let's say that you're going to a happy hour, you are with colleagues, you're in a creative brainstorm session, and you want everyone to be open. You want everyone to feel welcome. It's not about your ideas, it's about the team ideas. Well, in that situation, you'd be best served to show more warmth cues, more nodding, more smiling, more social gazing. Um, Those cues are literally sending signals of warmth. Again, we're still in that 68 to 72 range. You don't want to have too much of one, but that's what really highly charismatic people do. And you, we, the example I gave in the book is Jeff Bezos. There's two different interviews of him, one in 60, one in 60 Minutes and one with a Business Insider interview. And it's the same person, but he looks completely different. On the 60 Minutes interview, he's clearly going for warmth, being relatable, being kind of friendly. It's a more casual interview. In the Business Insider interview, he's super high in competence. He's trying to really talk about his business, be taken more seriously, talk about his growth. And he uses cues differently to come across as slightly higher in warmth versus competence, but depending on his goals.
0: Okay, so we just talked about some cues of charisma that you found that these just show charisma, the lean in and the fronting. But let's say you're in a situation, you kind of, you briefly touched on some, I'd like to flesh some of this stuff out. Let's say you're in a situation that requires more warmth. Like You give an example of a doctor who's trying to develop a rapport with a patient that needs more warmth. What are some cues that you can use to display more warmth?
1: Yes. So warmth is all about encouraging collaboration. So my favorite warmth cue that I like to start off with, most people start off with smiling. That's actually not my favorite warmth cue. And the reason for this is because in a lot of professional settings, it would be weird to like maniacally hold a smile on your face. So I actually don't recommend smiling first, especially because smiling can also be a submissive gesture. So my favorite warmth cue is a triple nod or any kind of nod. And the reason for this, and this is in Western cultures, and uh, I should make a cultural note. I'd always try to make a cultural note if there's anything different. A lot of these cues are universal, but nodding in Bulgaria, India, and Pakistan can be different. So if you're not in Bulgaria, India, or Pakistan, these tips are for you. So uh, nodding a vertical nod, so up and down nod means yes, And a horizontal nod means no. And we recognize this in these cultures as encouragement, um, agreement. And so what they found is that when someone does a slow triple nod, "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm," the other person speaks 67% longer. It's kind of like a nonverbal dot, dot, dot. That's actually how you can think about it. And this is super helpful. If you're on video, even on the phone, by the way, even um, national hotline callers are trained to nod. It literally is telling someone, please tell me more. I'm here. I'm listening. And that is a very subtle way to encourage more warmth. So nodding is one. Another kind of head one that you can try is a tilt. So uh, this comes from an evolutionary, this is across cultures, that when we try to hear something better, like if I were to say, do you hear that dog barking? usually we tilt our head over to the side and expose our ear. That's a universal response. And so we recognize if we're in conversation with someone and they tilt their head, they are deeply trying to listen, which is also another warmth cue. So I love those because if you're on video call or you're in person, you're trying to offer someone encouragement, make them feel the warm and fuzzies a tilt and a nod are super nonverbal, subtle ways to be like, I'm here, I'm listening. Really good interviewers. Oprah Winfrey does this really well. That's, I think, how she gets people to open up so much.
0: So that's interesting about the head nod, the slow triple head nod. There's this guy at my church a couple of years ago where you would talk to him and then he would just sit there in silence and it would be so intimidating. He's like, oh my gosh. And then you start nervously filling in the space. But one thing he did too, now that you mentioned it, he would do like the slow three nods while being in silence. And every, it's not just me. It was like other people too. It's like, man, whenever I talk to this guy, I just like blabber incessantly and I feel dumb. And I, I don't know if he like intentionally did this or he just kind of picked up on it, but it was effective. So the, the slow three nod and just being silent, that can get people just to, to spill the beans about anything
1: they also, I know we're not talking about vocal yet, but there is some really funny research on vocalizations along with some of these nonverbal cues. So I know exactly the type you're talking about that strong, silent type, and you just want to divulge your deepest secrets. I call that verbal vomit, um, where they just like, you just want to tell them everything. And a lot of it is because we're being cued to do so. Um, the other thing that research found is that this is a difference between men and women, women, Find men more attractive if they vocalize oh mmm ah, <laughs> along with a nod or a tilt. So if you want to be more attractive, this is one study like specifically for women to men in heterosexual relationships, you might also add in a mmm, oh, mm. ah. Women just love it.
0: They love it. All right. Okay, so there's some warmth cues. Tilting, nodding, the slow th- triple nod. But there's other things you mentioned too. You can do a smile, but you don't want it to be like a, a crazy smile. It's, you call it a savor smile. So it's just like, you know, you're really enjoying what you're seeing and interacting with. It's not like the, the fake smile thing.
1: Yeah. And um, the, the research has actually looked at types of smiles. I, I love this research. They found that a slow, what I call a savor smile, a smile that spreads across your face is actually the best kind of smile. So it's not holding the smile. And that is the worst. And this is important because I think that we can get really serious, especially in our professional settings, or even with our partner, you know, we're talking about logistics and the kids and pickup times, and we forget that there's some joy there. And so it's looking for opportunities to have either mutual laughter, oh my goodness, there is nothing happier for the brain than two people laughing at once, or showing a saver smile. So especially in the beginning of a call or beginning of the interaction, if someone's like, oh, it's so great to see you. I try to think of what is one thing I could say verbally that will give me warmth. So some uh, a warm word, happy to see you, so great to be here. Oh my goodness, it's so nice to finally give you a hug in person, whatever those words are. And pairing it with a slow saver smile, that is like a, a, a bonus points in the charisma scale because it aligns our verbal and our nonverbal, and we love it.
0: We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Advance is proud to offer free curbside services at most locations and for most vehicles to help drivers like you get back on the road. Head to your local Advance Auto Parts to get your existing battery tested for free. Need to buy a new battery? They can recommend and install one that's right for you, including the powerful, durable, and reliable diehard battery. Plus, Advance team members will test your starter and alternator to make sure your car starts and charges for even the longest of road trips. They'll also install your new wiper blades for free, loan out tools for your DIY projects, perform check engine light scanning, and more. Go to advancedautoparts.com, download the Advanced mobile app, or visit a store for more details. Boar's Head has harnessed the power of fire to create an unparalleled taste sensation. Introducing the new Firesmith Flame Grilled Chicken Breast. This expertly charred flame grilled masterpiece unlocks an intense new flavor to take your senses to new heights. Made with whole muscle chicken breast and chef-selected spices, then cooked over an open flame, Boar's Head Firesmith Flame Grilled Chicken Breast is carefully crafted to deliver a genuine grilled flavor in every mouth-watering bite. When Boar's Head lights a fire, they ignite an experience worth savoring and moments worth sharing. Flavor forged in flame. Spark your creativity with a Firesmith flame-grilled chicken breast. You buy one, cut it up. You could make a Firesmith flame-grilled chicken club sandwich. That sounds awesome. Or a Firesmith flame-grilled chicken Caesar salad. Also, another one I thought of, uh, Firesmith flame-grilled chicken cordon bleu sliders. That would be really good too. Available only at the deli and only from Boar's Head. Visit boarshead.com firesmith to learn more about this new product, find recipe inspiration, and play interactive games for a chance to win prizes. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. It's warming up. Summer is almost here. Summer means grilling, and Whole Foods can help you elevate your spread with quality proteins plus summer sides and desserts. Fire up the grill with animal welfare certified meat, including choice cuts like bone-in ribeye, top sirloin, and New York strip steak. Save with low prices on a wide range of dips and sides like organic pickles, organic coleslaw mix, spicy guacamole, roasted salsa verde, and more from 365 dollars by Whole Foods Market. They have a huge selection of beer and wine, including wine made with organic grapes. Plus, there's always something delicious in the bakery. Lean into pies and just topping them off with 365 by Whole Foods Market ice cream. So every Friday night in the spring and in the the summer in the McKay household, it's burger night. And Whole Foods is what makes burger night happen for us, our grill outs. Get the meat, the 80-20 hamburger meat. They got the buns. The organic pickles from 365 by Whole Foods, fantastic. Uh, they, They are really good. They got the buns, they got the chips, they got everything you need. And we're looking forward to having more grill outs with our friends included this summer as school gets out. And Whole Foods will be our place we go. Have more grill outs this summer. Make summer happen at Whole Foods Market. Time is valuable. And if you have a growing business, it can take up to almost two and a half months to hire for an open position. Well, if you're listening today, here's some advice for you. Stop waiting and start using ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter can help you find qualified candidates for all your roles fast. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology works to quickly find and send you the most qualified candidates for your roles. Review the candidates ZipRecruiter sends you, and you can personally invite the ones you're interested in to apply with one click which makes them apply even sooner. In fact, four out of five ZipRecruiter employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. So speed up your hiring process with ZipRecruiter. See why 3.8 million businesses have come to ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness, M-A-N-L-I-N-E-S-S. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. All right, let's talk about situations that require more power or competent social cues. And you, I love this, use the, the JFK Richard Nixon debate as a way to uh, highlight the power of power cues. So, what can we learn from that debate on how to utilize power cues?
1: Uh, so, that debate, so Nixon versus Kennedy, it was a very interesting point in our history. And from a nonverbal perspective, it was the first time where people realized there was something happening with our cues. Uh, during this time, part of the population watched the debate on television, part of the population listened to the debate on the radio. What was fascinating is this is the first time in U.S. history where there was a discrepancy between the winners or in the perceived winners. So everyone who watched the debate was sure that Kennedy won. Everyone who listened to the debate was mm-hmm. sure that Nixon won. And when you analyze just the first 30 seconds of this debate, and I highly recommend go on YouTube, search it, it's up for free. If you watch the first 30 seconds of the debate, you will see Nixon gives away, nonverbally all of his power. First, he immediately looks over at Kennedy and the moderator. And as humans, we are very attuned to gaze cues. We want to follow other people's gaze. They're telling us what's interesting. So I think that while Nixon was trying to be polite, he actually gave away all of his power in the first three seconds of the debate by looking over at Kennedy. It literally told the audience, don't look at me, look at Kennedy. He also was not fronting, right? So he took away that, um, so fronting is our toes, our torso and our head. He took away fronting from us, which subtly makes the audience feel disrespected. The second thing that he immediately does, he grips the side of his chair. You can actually see he's white knuckling. Now I don't know if he did this because he was nervous or he was trying to still himself. But when we see that white knuckle grip, it makes us think, ah, they're closed, they're nervous. The fist evolutionary, from an evolutionary perspective, is our uh, most protective gesture. When we're angry, we tend to clench our fists because it's um, our most powerful weapon against someone else. So that white knuckle made him look angry, it made him look closed. And interestingly, if you watch the very first few seconds, he's in what's called a runner's stance. He has his knee pulled back. And some interesting historical fact is he had injured his knee on the campaign campaign trail a week earlier. So I think he was actually nursing his injured knee. But what happened was, is because if you think about a runner about to take off on a race on the starting block, they have one leg back. This is a universal readiness position. When someone is about to run away or flee, they instinctively go into this position. Well, we don't like leaders who are about to run away from us. And so in this one little snapshot, we see a clenched fist, someone not fronting with us and literally looking like they're about to run for their lives.
0: And then uh, Kennedy, the complete opposite. He was looking at the camera, looking at the audience, just looked cool, calm, and collected like he he was in charge.
1: He was not only calm, he was broad. So I think there's a little bit of a myth I would love to bust if we can. You know, power posing had a moment in like 2010 where it was in like every show, everyone was power posing. I love a power pose. It's very high power, high competence. But it's also socially aggressive. So you're not going to walk into your meetings with your hands above your head. What power really looks like is what Kennedy looked like in the first second of this debate nice and relaxed shoulders, a maximized distance. This is the weirdest distance, but it's incredibly important for perceived confidence. The distance between your earlobe and your shoulder. Really highly competent people, they maximize this distance because their shoulders are down and relaxed and their head is held high. When people are not confident, you see this distance shrink. They turtle their head down. They pull their ears up, their shoulders up towards their ears. They hunch their shoulders in. And so he had that distance maximized. He was nice and relaxed. And it made us want to catch that calm confidence. Oh, he also did a nod in the first 30 seconds. When he was introduced, he gives a very subtle, calm nod. So he balanced out that competence with the perfect warmth cue.
0: So mention some power cues there. Don't be scrunched up be relaxed, be big, be open. Doesn't mean you have to put your hands up in the air and do the power pose, but just powerful people take up space and they're they're comfortable taking up space around them. Some other interesting ones that you talked about in the book that I thought were interesting was the, the steeple fingers. And I think on the cover of your book, you, you, you're doing the steeple fingers, correct?
1: <laughs> that cover was, we argued a lot about that cover. We ended up with me doing a steeple. Yes, a steeple is if you want to try this with me. Um, Actually, there's an interesting loop here. I'm curious. So if you're listening, put the tips of your fingers together into like a little church steeple. Don't press your palms together. Leave space between your hands and just hold it for a second. This position should actually make you feel quite calm and collected. It's kind of like a power pose for your hands. The reason for this is because when our hands are open and relaxed, especially if our palms are open and showing, right? You can still see our palms when we steeple and our fingers are together. It's as if we're thinking... Oh, I am calm, cool, and collected. And so that steeple gesture is... You'll notice it on Shark Tank. Kevin O'Leary loves to do it. Um, political leaders have been taught to do it. Now, I always say with with cues, you have to try them on. Not There's 96 cues in the book, right? some cues are going to feel great. You're going to be like, Oh, I already do that. Yes. Amazing. you already do one of those cues, fantastic. Some cues you might have to try a couple times and be like, Oh, you know what? This one works for me. And there's going to be some cues that you'll feel absolutely ridiculous. The steeple is one of those cues. You have to try it on in a couple different situations. Either you're going to love it and it will be part of your hand gesture repertoire. Or you're going to be like, I feel so silly. Do not do it. If you feel silly... I want only you to only use cues that make you feel authentic.
0: So uh, we mentioned charisma cues. So the leaning in the fronting, warmth cues, the head tilt, the head nodding, competence cues, power posture. So that distance between ears and shoulders, the steeple pose. What are some nonverbal cues that people should just avoid so they don't go in that danger you know, contemptible zone?
1: Oh, yes. This was one of my favorite chapters to write. It was actually the longest chapter. I call these the danger zone cues. And what's interesting about them is they are the nonverbal cues that you both don't want to show, but you also want to watch out for, because if you see them, they can be signals, especially of more negative emotions. So fear, shame, anger, disgust. And so not only do you want to avoid showing these, but you also want to make sure that you're on the lookout to make sure if you see them, that means, okay, I got to dig deeper. Someone might be hiding something. And I'm always careful to say that they're bad. And the reason for this is because there's also times where you do want to show danger zone cues to shut down a connection. So if someone's challenging you or you don't want to build rapport, you can even save these danger zone cues for, I'm out, I want to set up boundaries, and I don't want to talk to you. So they're very, very powerful cues.
0: So what are some examples of ones that, that you focus a lot on in the book?
1: So one that I love is called the lip purse. And this is a universal gesture. So... When we press our lips together, so if you just want to mash your lips together, like make them into a hard line, mm, can we kind of make that mm, sound? That is a universal withholding gesture. It's as if as humans, when we're trying to keep something in or keep it together or hold back, our mouth presses in to say, don't say that, stop that. And we do this when we're trying to withhold. So this could be something that we're ashamed of, something we're embarrassed of. It could be even a lie or deception. So one of the things we did in our lab, I love this experiment, we played two truths and a lie. You know, that game where you say two true statements about yourself and one lie with hundreds of our participants. And what we had participants do is we had them submit videos of themselves sharing two truths and a lie. And the lip purse was the most common cue that we saw right before or right after the lying statement. The reason for this is because we know as humans that lying gets into trouble, right? It, it, we don't like to lie. It makes us feel sort of dirty. And so we noticed that people would say, you know, um, their true statement, true statement, and then mm, quick lip purse and the lie. It was like their body going, don't say it, don't say it, or don't give anything away. And so a lip purse is a great cue because it lets you know, I have to give this person permission to tell me more. So when I see a lip purse, I'll say, hey, are we all good? Do you have any questions for me? Anything I'm not hitting? Does this all make sense? So that's the way that I think when we see a danger zone cue, it gives us an opportunity to just open up the communication more.
0: Okay. So you that's a great example of be on the lookout for a cue um, and someone else. That—that that, What's that? That's the encoding part. It's the decoding yes, part. Yes, right. Yes. yes. Okay. So we talked about nonverbal cues. Let's shift over to uh, verbal cues. And you talk about in the book, our voice can convey social cues. How can we use our voice to sound more competent, more warm?
1: So we have so much that we're conveying in our voice. And that's because when we're listening to someone, we are listening for their confidence. We're listening to how open they are. And um, what research has found is actually we decide how confident someone is within the first hundred milliseconds of hearing them speak. And so one thing that we noticed right away is there's two different cues that we should listen out for, um, for, for vocal power. Um, the first one is up talk or the question inflection. So when we are speaking and we're confident in our words, we use a neutral inflection or a downward inflection. So right now I'm speaking in a neutral inflection. If I'm really powerful about something, I'll sling my words down at the end. So I'll go down my inflection. Up talk is when we go up at in our inflection. It's when we're asking a question. So we'll say, my name is Vanessa. What research has found is that when we accidentally use up talk on a statement, it literally triggers the other person to think they're questioning themselves. Should I question them? So we do tons of sales analyses for companies. And we found that when people get the most pushback or negotiation on their numbers, especially their prices, it's because they deliver their number in UpTalk. So they'll say, We love to have your business. We love to work with you. And the price of our service is $5,000. When we ask, you are begging someone to question you you're begging someone to negotiate with you. So the first thing is making sure on your video calls in person, in your voicemail, that you are using a neutral or downward inflection, especially on the important statements, your name, your price, advice, timelines. It's critical that that actually triggers confidence because it shows I feel confident. I'm not questioning and neither should you.
0: All right. So avoid the uptalk. Another one you talk about is vocal fry as well, right?
1: So vocal fry typically affects uh, women more than men. They've actually found this in the research that um, because women want to be perceived as more likable, typically are seen as higher in warmth, they um, will use more question inflection as if to say, do you like this statement? So it's actually a questioning in their statement. And they also tend to have vocal fry. Vocal fry is when our voice goes into a kind of wavery. Uh, so you hear like it's sizzling bacon in a pan, that kind of wavery. Now, if I were to talk like this in my entire interview, it would drive you crazy. The reason for that is because as humans, we know that if someone's in vocal fry, they're likely vocally anxious. A uh, vocal fry happens when we don't have enough volume, we don't have enough breath, and our vocal cords tense. So right now I'm working very hard to keep my vocal power in the lowest end of my range with consistent volume. But now what I'll do for you, just so you can hear the difference, is I'm gonna tighten my vocal cords so you can hear what anxiety sounds like. So when I'm a little bit anxious, I tend to go a little bit higher in my range and I also lose volume. And you can hear that I have a lot more vocal fry. And that is because when we are tense, we lose breath and it's hard for our vocal cords to rub together. Now, the moment I relax my vocal cords, ah, sounds so much better. So what we have to be really aware of is the moment you hear yourself go into vocal fry, speak louder. The fastest way to fix vocal fry is to speak up. The moment we have volume, we add more breath. If you're with someone and they are using vocal fry, ask them, "Can you speak up? I can't hear you." It is the fastest way to fix vocal fry, and also take a deep breath, use the lower end of your voice, and it makes you feel better. I that felt terrible. Like just doing that little five second demo, it actually makes me feel more, um, anxious, even just doing the vocal fry.
0: You mentioned vocal fry, uh, is more common with women. Um, but I've, I've been hearing a lot of, a lot more dudes, uh, with vocal so I think it's becoming more common with men. Uh, so I think that's something everyone should be aware of and avoid if you want to sound more powerful. Um, same thing with uptalk, avoid that. Um, another thing we already mentioned is the guy who uses, you know, let's call them power pauses right? That's another thing you do to sound more powerful. It's, uh, you know, you you take up space conversationally uh, by being silent.
1: And a a pause doesn't have to be long. Actually, the perfect pause, they measured it, is about a half of a second. So it's just enough time to take a a breath in. And this works, right? We think, okay, if someone is willing to take a breath, they feel confident that I'm not going to interrupt them. And it also keeps our vocal power low. So a mistake that can happen is when we're anxious, we speak faster which makes us not pause, which makes us sound less conversationally confident. It makes us run out of breath. And so you'll notice that people hit vocal fry at the end of their sentence. And that's because they're trying to get it all in. So they speak really fast. They don't pause it all. And then by the end of their sentence, they don't have any breath left. It's so third vocal fry. So pausing is like a double punch where it allows you to take a deep breath. And also it makes, it prevents vocal fry at the end really really charismatic people we we coded ted talks in our lab and we found that the most charismatic people use pausing to create drama in their sentences so they'll say today i have a really big idea i'm going to share it with three different ways that are going to change your life All right like that's that, that ted talk speak <laughs> there's a reason we like it is because it's actually the, the pausing is creating drama in a really good way.
0: What can we do to, to with our voice to sound more warm?
1: So warmth is, the, this is actually, you always want to pair vocal warmth with verbal warmth. What I mean by this is it's really easy to add vocal warmth when you're talking about things that make you feel warm. So especially the first 10 seconds of interaction, are you happy to be there? Are you happy to collaborate? Is it a good morning for the team? I think the the biggest enemy of vocal warmth is we go accidentally negative. So we're starting a call or we're hopping into a meeting and we say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm late. The traffic was terrible. Oh my gosh. It's so hot. It's so cold. It's been so busy, right? When you do that, you can hear my vocal tone also goes more negative and we don't like hearing negativity. So what you're better off doing is what is something positive you can say in the first 10 seconds that you can match with vocal warmth. Your voice can smile and that sounds crazy, but I'll do two demos for you. So I'll do a hello. Just one word. This is your vocal first impression. We found in our lab that people could hear the happy hello. So which one sounds happier to you? Hello? Hello?
0: Second one. Second yeah.
1: one. Yeah. Yeah. And we can hear that happiness. So if you compare it with a verbal happiness, it makes it more authentic.
0: Okay. So that's a weird, so smile when you say, like when you answer the phone, smile when you you say hello.
1: Yes. And deliver whatever that good thing is that you were ready to give, you know, Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Wow. It's such a beautiful day. I've been looking forward to this all week. It's so much easier to naturally smile and it actually changes the way your voice sounds.
0: And I, I'm going to let people in. Vanessa did this when we first got on, she did that. She was, it was you could tell she was smiling and she brought in that, that warm stuff. Uh, and it worked. I was like, man, I want to talk to this person. Can't wait to talk to her.
1: And I, and I had thought about before our call, I was like, Oh my gosh, I have to tell him that my favorite Art of Manliness article, I can't wait to tell him. And so I was waiting with with that good piece of news, which made it super easy for me to smile.
0: And your favorite article was the Generational Cycles article that we wrote a long time ago.
1: The Cyclical History of Men is the single best article on the internet. I literally send it out every two to three weeks. And if you have not read it, you must go read it. It's fascinating.
0: Well, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. So let's talk about imagery cues. All right, so we talked about our voice. The the words we can use can make us feel more warm. Uh, What are some ways that we can use our image to appear more competent or more warm?
1: So imagery cues are really important because they typically create neural maps. And what I mean by this is one single prop, color, image, pin can trigger all kinds of feelings. So I always like to use dating profiles as an example. This is the easiest way to think about it. If you are skimming through dating profiles and someone is holding a snowboard, that might activate a whole series of other feelings for you. If you like snowboards, adventure, vacation, fun memories with your family. If you don't like snowboarding, it triggers a whole different set of things. Cold, hurting, falling, And so we use imagery already subconsciously, but I want to make it more conscious where in your profile pictures, what you're wearing, what's on your desk, what's in your zoom background, all of those things are triggering neural maps for people. You want to make sure they're triggering the right things.
0: What are some things that, you know, guys can do in particular to think about how they they dress? I think a lot of guys like, well, how you dress is so superficial. But in your research and in your coaching, easy things that guys can think about in terms of dress that can up their competence or their warmth?
1: Yes. So for dress specifically, you always want to think about where you fit in. So this can be with dating or even interviews. You want to dress for the company you want to work at. You want to dress for how you want to dress on your ideal date. For example, if your ideal date is, you know, hanging out with a picnic in the park, you don't want to be in a button down, even though other people might like that because that's not actually your ideal date. You actually be better off being in a more casual, your favorite t-shirt, your favorite jeans, because it's going to trigger trigger the right neural maps to the right people. I do not believe in appealing to everyone. I I believe in appealing to the right people. So if your ideal partner is the kind of person who would want to do a picnic and dress more casually, I would rather you trigger a positive neural map for them. So what's your ideal date? What's your ideal meeting? Is it online? Is it casual? Is it a business suit? Is it a button down? Dress for your ideal. That's going to turn on the right people and turn off the wrong
0: people. That makes sense. Yeah. If you wear a suit, you might get somebody that they want it like fancy stuff all the time. That's actually not you. And you found yourself in like, I'm in a conundrum here.
1: I'll give you another very kind of, this happens in a lot of ways, not just you know, the basics of formal and not formal, you know, politicians in the United States are known to wear pins, flag pins, So a flag pin is a symbol for certain people that they love. It's also an ornament or a symbol of certain people they do not love. And so even when you think about those kinds of things, like wearing a pin on your lapel or not, what does that pin say? I want you to think about what are the other pins in your life? They could be images in your profile. They could be things in your background. Um, All of those things are going to either be allergies for people you don't want or attractors for people you do want.
0: I like that. Well, Vanessa, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work?
1: Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. Cues is wherever books are sold. I also record the Audible and that we have a lot of fun with that. So if you prefer audiobooks and then of course my website is scienceofpeople.com. We have a ton of um, free videos of cues, nonverbal cues. I break down the rock and so many fun people, Princess Diana, Justin Bieber. So if you want to see some of the cues in action, you can also waste many, many hours on our website if you'd like.
0: Great. Well, Vanessa Van Edwards, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: My guest name is Vanessa Van Edwards. She's the author of the book, Cues. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You find more information about her work at our website, scienceofpeople.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash charismacues, where you find links to resources, We you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINES to check out for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review novel podcast or Spotify. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you on listening to a podcast, put what you've heard into action. stylish Toyota Camry, there's no such thing as an average commute to the office. Off to work. Woo-hoo! And with its available V6 engine, there's no run-of-the-mill drives to the pet groomer. Let's take the long way, Tiger. Because the always fun to drive, no matter where you're going, Toyota Camry, is the cure for the common, well, everything. Next stop, the hardware store. To check out the Camry for yourself, visit your local Toyota dealer or Toyota.com today. Toyota. Let's go places. See packages and options at Toyota.com for future availability.